Dan Rosen is the founding partner of the Rhodium Group and leads the China team there. He is also my boss. That's right, folks. After nearly a year and a half of working full-time on China Talk, I found a full-time job. Dan, you want to tell the story of how we got connected? Hey, this is so much fun. I'm so glad we're doing this. This kind of started last fall, I think. You know, when you're building a firm and... I, I like looked in the mirror the other day and realized it's been 17 years that Rhodium's been building. Sometimes you can go for years without taking stock of what other people are doing in the world. So I kind of stuck my head up out of the pandemic foxhole last fall, and I realized that it seemed like half my team was on your show, and that since you had come through to say hi in my office, you had built this really amazing thing. And I just said, I just got to talk to this guy and just see what he's doing, what this little empire is all about. So I reached out. And uh, we started chatting a little bit, and I didn't expect it, but it turned out you were quite well matched for something that we weren't advertising yet, but had been thinking about a long time here. So, Dan, what happens to China Talk? Do I get to keep doing the show? (laughs) If it weren't for China Talk, I wouldn't have found you in the first place. And if it weren't for my interest in seeing you continue it, you wouldn't be here with me, I think. So I hope so. The problem there is you're going to have to clone yourself if you want to do anything like the quality of output that you've done in China Talk in the past. At the same time, you start being the kind of productive Rhodium teammate that, that I know you're going to be too. So something's nice and, nice nice and weekends, weekends, Dan. Nice and weekends. <laughs> oh, I'm already counting the nights and weekends. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be tough. Something's got to give. There's more interesting things to be done than any of us can do. And um, I look forward to seeing how China Talk can help Rhodium increase its projection out there and reach new audiences. I'm a fan, and I'm a convert to the uh, importance of that channel to reach out there and join the conversation. So I just want to say a few things. Uh, Thank everyone for listening uh, to this show. Your uh, contributions to glow.fm slash China Talk and occasional consulting projects helped me get through what was professionally a very fallow 2020. And if you had contributed not just monetarily to your show, but through your downloads, iTunes reviews, and retweets to juice the algorithm and get this show in front of Dan, I may not be in this dream position I have today, uh, which is a full-time job with healthcare and benefits, getting paid to spend all day reading and writing about China and technology. I got to say, my emotional relationship to the whole China Talk enterprise has been a bit of a rocky one. On the one hand, it's you know impossible to listen to this show without realizing that I love this kind of stuff. However, putting so much time into a project, which doesn't really make me all that much money, particularly after I had to move back from Beijing to the U.S., wasn't sustainable. And I've resisted putting podcasts and newsletter editions behind a paywall because from the start, I really view this as more of a academic and educational as opposed to a straight uh, commercial enterprise. There were other job opportunities that came across my transom I didn't seriously consider because they would have required me to stop doing the show. But that's a posture you can only sustain for so long. Um, so yeah, thanks, Dan, for uh, giving me a job and letting me keep this show up. I just want to let everyone know that I still own this podcast and newsletter, and it will be editorially independent from Rhodium. I will likely feature more Rhodium analysts on occasion, not because Dan is making me, but because I think they're fantastic people who have really interesting things to say about China. So Dan, uh, briefly, what is Rhodium and what does it do? Well, for starters, Rhodium's an independent economic research firm. People often think we're a think tank. We're not a think tank. We're not a nonprofit. We're a for-profit entity. 
I spent the first 10 years of my career in the think tank space in DC, Peterson Institute. And it's great to have the luxury to read and write all day, as you put it. But it's even greater to put that to market on a regular basis so that you know whether it works <laughs> in the real world. There's an old think tank joke that something works in practice, but will it work in theory? Question mark. Well, I found that charming. I didn't find it my personal style in life. I, I needed to put things out there in the marketplace and see if they had value. So that's what Rhodium does. We spend um, a huge amount of our time and effort doing public policy oriented work in partnership with think tanks still. Um, not super remunerative. I'm not going to get rich doing that. And then we hope and pray and toil to make sure that that public policy thought leadership we invest in and commit to has relevance and applicability in the private sector with corporate clients, financial clients, government clients, folks that have a mission that they've got budget to pursue where we can help. So we really are kind of a hybrid that you're signing up for here. And um, it's kind of the best of both worlds. It's also super challenging because we've got to both make sure that we have credibility in public policy space, but relevance in the commercial world at the same time. And that's harder than it, it, it sounds if it sounds easy. So why, why start hiring people who know things about China and technology? That's a good question. It's relatively new thing for us to start bringing in folks who already have made their way up the curve in more particular areas. Um, of all those areas where we could be looking for people that have more capability than we have in-house, technology is the one that just um, wouldn't go away. As much as for years, for me, starting in the 1990s, understanding why technology was flowing to China, why global companies were bringing either explicitly or implicitly their higher technology and deploying it in China, even though there were so many IPR problems, intellectual property rights problems, et cetera, was always crucial to understand. And we've done a great job, I think, understanding that here. We have a good understanding of the role of technology in China's so-called total factor productivity, or TFP, which is a key part of what their speed limit is for their GDP growth. We understand how technology feeds into the structure of the Chinese economy. If you look at it broken down by industry and services, for instance, and we, we have a great understanding of the international security issues at, the, at a high level. What we don't have without starting to bring people like yourself in is an ability to go all the way down into the weeds and sort out which competing point of view around some very specific, very particular debates and issues on tech is the right way to think about things. And so we need both. I mean, that is kind of the rhodium analytic tradition to be able to marry up the macro and the micro. And in conventional economic analysis um, around industry, manufacturing, what have you, I think, you know, we're, we're, I just, I'm so proud of where we already are. When it comes to technology, it gets more and more complicated all the time, of course. That's like a truism. And we need to build out the team if we're going to be able to go with our clients and with public you know, interest all the way from on high, but down into the, uh, the Great Plains, um, where a lot of these debates are going to play out. And I'm counting on you to help us do that. Just like the idea of 
American technology analyst is like kind of a silly one. China tech analyst is also extraordinarily vague and can mean a million different things. So Dan and I right now are trying to work through exactly what would be most uh, relevant and interesting for folks uh, in and outside of government. So if you out there listening work at a corporation, financial firm, or government where people get to vote for their leaders and have burning analytical questions about China tech, we'd love to uh, hear from you and and think about how we can start building up coverage and resources which would make your job understanding what's happening on China and technology easier. So please reach out. It's a two-way street. We have some big ideas um, around how technology is reshaping uh, the structural landscape, but we've kind of got to crowdsource this too. There are things that are way beyond my technological you know, comprehension that are super crucial um, to determining what the future is going to look like even one year from now. So many kind of technological forks in the road that are going to kind of point the way to, to how things play through. And so I'm super excited to see how your readers react to the uh, opportunities we have to put to market a, a deeper and broader analysis of technology dynamics. So, Dan, you've been, as you alluded to, in this game a long time now. What do you think have been the phases of Westerners analyzing China since you founded Rhodium back in 2003? Yeah, Rhodium since 2003 and... Uh, professionally since 1993, um, when I finished grad school and went to, well, with then, then just the Institute for International Economics. Um, there are the phases in analysis, and I wouldn't just say Western analysis, but uh, market analysis of China, right? I mean, there's a whole, there's multiple generations of Chinese economists who had all the same debates inside China as we've had outside China, really, right? And so we've seen the kind of same phases play through there, too. First, skepticism, I think, even back in the 90s, that China really intended to permit a kind of structural adjustment to totally change the landscape of the economy. Nobody actually believed that that could happen back um, when I got started in 1992, 90, 93. It was, you know, probably fair to say people thought it was just going to be sort of window dressing. But over the course of the 90s, we saw like 200,000 state-owned enterprises wound down, combined with others, shut, corporatized was the term back then. Privatized was still not, you know, approved verbiage for talking about that. We saw the number of goods that were bought and sold at market prices go from low double digits to over 90% of all transactions in the marketplace being sold and priced according to supply and demand. So those were pretty radical validations that there was something different happening here than the more cynical, more realpolitik folks who thought that, you know, the leadership wasn't really going to let the market off a leash. By 1998-99, it was clear that it was being let off a leash, and that was interesting. And so economists inside and outside China took a while to catch up to that, but after WTO accession in December 2001 is when it finally formally happened, the sort of whole party kind of moved over to that side of the boat. And just as they did, of course, economists always being a lagging indicator, I'm af afraid to say, because they deal with data, which describes what happened yesterday, right, by definition, most of the time, that impulse to make the market more central started 
to show some limits. And in the first half of the decade after 2001, that was sort of ambiguous, mixed signals, a lot of ways to say, well, you know, of course, it's just sort of a, a slight corrective back in the other direction to balance things out. But by the end of the 2000s, decade of the 2000s, after the global financial crisis, et cetera, it was sort of a full-blown shift back to doubt as to whether the uh, Chinese economy would continue to marketize. So I think looking at the whole arc of almost three decades now, that has been you know, the most fundamental dynamic that I've seen in, in analysis. This sort of lagged awareness that marketization wasn't smoke and mirrors, it was real, but then also a lagged and begrudging acknowledgement that our assumptions that would keep going to a certain endpoint were flawed to some great extent. And now today we're, we're right in the middle of this extraordinary debate about whether, you know, things could, could even possibly go back uh, in a more liberal direction again, I would say. So what was it like, you know, you talked about sort of people being surprised at marketization being a thing that actually happened. Um, you know, the other inflection point we've seen, of course, in the past five years is political liberalization going into reverse. Uh, maybe just like, what was it like watching China when people were optimistic about the future of uh, where the CCP was heading? And, um, you know, and how, and how was that for you sort of seeing that, seeing that turn with the rise of Xi? <laughs> um, I guess I would say, Jordan, just stick around a little bit and, and you'll have a chance to see for yourself. Another way to put that would be that uh, a, a China pessimist is just an optimist who hasn't hit the bottom of a cycle yet. Look, China made its way down a liberalizing path, not because it was forced to do so by the United States or anybody else, but because its very hard-headed leaders a long time ago came to the conclusion that that was the only way to make China great again. And it worked by allowing a lot of apolitical, practical, hardworking Chinese people off silly ideological nationalistic leashes, a tremendous amount of growth and dynamism and potential was opened up and reshaped the destiny of the country. And looking even more recently, I guess I would take a slightly contrarian view even of the Xi Jinping era. I think Xi Jinping coming in 2012-13, the most really notable thing about his start is that he put somebody like Liu He in charge of crafting economic strategy. And the first economic planning manifesto put on the table in November 2013 is notable not for its illiberalism, but for the clarion call to move to the next stage of economic reform. And that wasn't just dogma on a piece of paper. From 2013 until 2016-17, you had maybe half a dozen really serious first-order efforts to take the next lap around the track in terms of economic opening up. You had an attempt to rein in the shadow banking market in 2013. You had an opening up of the financial account for capital outflows in 2015. You had a release of the equity markets, allowing them to bubble up in 2015, 2016. You had an attempt to deleverage the financial system in 2017, 2018. 
you had an attempt to internationalize the renminbi, even though everyone understood that meant you were going to have to stop manipulating the currency the same way as had been done in the past. So these were not all sort of gimmicks or Prexa digitation. These were actually real serious reforms. And we're no, we know they're real because each one of them created a miniature crisis that had the potential to cause a much more serious crisis in the system, so much so that they had to reverse course and go back to a more lockdown approach to dealing with that, that set of policies, right? So even now, there's reason to be optimistic if you want to be. But to be fair and to be practical, we have to look at the other side of the ledger and all the things that are happening simultaneous and parallel to that effort that are distinctly illiberal and attempting to put stability over all else, right? It's trying to have dynamism and stability at the same time. You tell me how that works. I'm supposed to answer that question? Yeah, good luck. <laughs> your, your first job assignment. Give me a memo next Tuesday. Okay. Well, I'll check in with Jonah High. I'll see how they're doing. Um, Dan, decoupling. Rodium recently put out a media report with the chamber you co-authored with Lauren Glaudeman trying to put numbers around what a hard decoupling would mean. What are your takeaways from that exercise? Decoupling, you know, it's it's uh, it's a fraught term. We're going to probably have to throw it overboard along with like the Washington consensus or something like that. It's just it's got too much baggage on it already. But we we actually started talking about it seriously about three years ago after the December 2017 new national security strategy, which made it clear to us that engagement as we knew it was not just being tactically set aside by a Trump administration looking for a deal, but was really done. And we were going to be entering into a new era. So we thought of that as partial decoupling, a reality. And it doesn't have to sound as scary as it sounds. It's kind of natural, right? I mean, two countries that are like-minded are going to be more interoperable, say Canada and the U.S., than two countries that are systemically not like-minded. And no matter what, what you think about China and the Chinese economy, there's no pretending that it's the same kind of economic bedrock assumptions about the role of government, the role of the market, right, um, that we have in the United States. And so all that engagement policy over the decades was contingent, predicated on the working assumption that China intended to converge with advanced economy-like liberal economic systems. And in the past couple of years, China's made it clear that if it did in the past, it doesn't presently intend to fully converge. And so we have to do a stock taking of the ways we are engaged, the way we had sort of anticipatorily started to lower barriers to economic interaction and go ahead and open all these channels up. Well, if China's going to go a slightly different way, then that needs to be audited and, and fixed. And so you know, some amount of partial decoupling is a reality. It doesn't have to be, you know, put in warlike terms. It's just the reality that not all systems are, are exactly alike, and thus they can't be equally open to one another um, as they would be if they were, you know, exactly alike. So we now then have the tough analytic question of what's that going to cost? <laughs> because if you're going to not just talk about 
resizing the extent of our engagement, but actually do something about it. There's going to be winners and losers. There's going to be a price tag. And because China and the United States are the two largest economies in the world, it's going to be a big price tag. And yet the initial forays at re-engineering our interaction from the past couple of years were done without having much of a sort of economic impact assessment, if you will. Lauren and I set out with the chamber to do a stock taking of that. <laughs> we, we, we started the study a month before COVID-19 broke out. And what we had hoped to do is take a normal year of economic interaction between China and the U.S. and use that as a baseline to project what the total effects of decoupling could be in the future. The pandemic has made that impossible because our economic structure, their economic structure, the future is no longer extrapolatable in a straight line kind of way, if it ever was, right? Based on like 2018, 2019 numbers. And so we put out a study that instead just offered sort of a broad order of magnitude understanding of what decoupling would mean in four channels, trade, finance, people flows, and technology and ideas flows. And to make a longer story and a longer report that's worth everybody's reading shorter, you know, the answer is that there's no kind of decoupling that's not a multiple hundreds of billions of dollars price tag um, for the United States. Does that mean that we should shy away from it? Not necessarily at all, right? It all depends on whether we're really buying a security benefit or some kind of long-term economic strategic benefit by changing how we work with China, but we have to do the math because the price tag is too big just to kind of throw our credit card down without looking at the check. We've seen in the past few months the Biden administration as well as folks on the Hill warming to industrial policy. You have Biden talking about a cool $37 billion for the domestic chip industry, but also a... um, you know, a line, I think Catherine Tai said it, that uh, the U.S. doesn't want to out-China China. What are lessons to be learned applicable to U.S. policymaking from Chinese industrial policy and the state's role in the economy? And what lessons should we be sure not to learn? Great question. And it's such an important question, right? We definitely don't want to try to out-China China for two reasons, I'll, for the time being, I'll offer. One, us trying to do China is not going to work. We are not set up like China. We don't have the kind of one-party command and control structure that China has on paper that allows it on paper to do all this industrial policy stuff. We simply cannot do it that way. We have a democratic society where the people who need to pay the taxes to fund that industrial policy have a say over whether we conclude that we should provide massive subsidies to businesses who, it turns out, might do it anyway without the subsidies. So we've got a different kind of system, and we just we can't, we can't do it the Chinese way. The second reason not to do it the Chinese way is that the Chinese way actually doesn't work. <laughs> and it doesn't work as much as many people think it does work in China. It doesn't work as well as the Chinese leadership itself likes to suggest it works. If you look at not just the volume of money and resources and effort that China um, has put toward things like industrial policy, particular industries, particular firms, but ask how much have they actually gotten for that in terms of real innovation? And how much debt has built up that's borrowed from the future, I think 
it's not at all clear that Chinese industrial policy is worth emulating, even if we could. In fact, I'm pretty, pretty much ready to say it should be avoided by not just the United States, but virtually all countries. So talking about debt, Dan, um, China in 2020 was the only large economy with a positive growth rate. But at the same time, we've seen a slow but steady uh, drumbeat of credit events from nationalizations and bank restructurings to street protests outside financial firms headquarters, like literal bank runs of people lining outside of, of their bank and folks in the in the bank like throwing money in the window just to make sure that people realize there's still cash available. What What should folks make of the fact that um, of the fact that we see these two trends happening at once. For starters, you know, both stories are true, right? China did turn in a better short-term performance than anybody else in 2020. And it did so because the center has the ability to reach in and compel the financial system to behave in various ways, right? And so that's a great solution to the short-term problem of how to deliver more growth in the near term. The problem is that you can only get away with that year after year if you have credibility. If you if the center has the credible ability to say that this is going to create more and better growth in the future, we're going to have a good return on investment in other words, right? And we've been doing a project for 5 years now we call China Dashboard looking at this question of what is the return on all this debt that China incurs. And when Xi Jinping took over, for every about three and a half or four renminbi of new debt created every year, there was about one renminbi of persistent growth in GDP and output in, in the economy, in the nation. And that was pretty close to international standard, like what we considered to be a pretty good international ratio. Today, it's nine. You need nine renminbi of new credit to be issued by somebody to get that same one renminbi of GDP growth <laughs> out into the future. So something is not going in the right direction. And that's not just a normal sign of a country reaching middle income levels. In fact, quite the opposite. At this level, you should start to see financial efficiency go up because some of the early stage you know, maybe not great rate of return, but socially very valuable investments. That stuff should be done after 40 years of five-year plan after five-year plan after five-year plan. Now we should start to see, you know, nationally speaking, a better financial system with better returns on investment, but we're seeing the opposite. So it's not to say that the party doesn't have the power to reach in and tell the banks what to do for a couple more years throw that money in the window, as you put it, which is literally true. That does happen, right? But it's less and less credible to believe that there's a smooth way from doing it this way to doing it the way that efficient market economies do it. And that's going to have to be addressed. And it's not being addressed yet. Overrated and underrated. Dan, track two dialogues. Are you wasting your time? <laughs> Oh, no, you're starting to sound like my other colleagues already second guessing um, whether it's a good use of a partner's time to to do all these dialogues. I, I see I'm going to have to take you out to lunch or buy you a good bottle of wine or something, bring you over to my side. 
I, I guess by saying putting it that way, I'm saying that I think track two dialogues very much can have tremendous value and play an important role. I mean, if for those who don't know what they are, this is people who at some point have had a chance to be in in uh, in government, meeting with their colleagues from the other side and talking about things that are too impolitic or or inappropriate for for people in the official sector to be talking about. So you can trial balloon things, you can kind of test out some ideas. When they're done well, they play a crucial role. Everybody has different opinions about what makes a good what what makes them run well. And also lately it seems well, like everybody Well what's what what's your what's your opinion on what makes them run well? Well first of all, you know, there's like a skillion of them now. Everybody who wants to raise money for their think tank just announces that they're going to do a track two, track two dialogue. That, in my estimation, does not really make it a meaningful track two dialogue. I'm kind of conservative and stodgy about this, I guess, in my old age here. But to me, they work best when they flow from an actual ask from the official sector, from the track one world. So if somebody in track one says, we'd like to better understand if it's possible to make some progress on this issue. The two sides are finding it too, you know, politically scary to get together right now and talk about this officially. They don't trust each other enough, maybe. And so why don't you put together a, a gathering of, of, uh, of former senior officials or something like that and see if you can't get a little bit of sense uh, of whether we can take a few more chances here, what the other side would say. That means that this is not just people getting paid by the word to talk, but there's actually a mission and a purpose and an objective to test something out, explore some ideas, and crucially bring it back to a ready audience that is interested in what the results are. If folks just say, I'm going to do a track two dialogue, we're just going to get together, and then we're going to publish an open letter of what we think the world should be like, I mean, that's fine. It's, it's great that civil society does that. It's, it's important. It's crucial. But it's not what I would call an effective track to dialogue mode. Conversations with policymakers in government, um, you know, sitting in either the private sector or in a think tank. How much of this is them reaching out for genuine requests for advice or versus them sort of working the umpires? <laughs> it's a savvy question because a lot of it is the latter. A lot of it is persuasion by other means, right? Inviting folks in to have a conversation, dangle a little bit of information. But what you're really doing is influencing the debate and trying to massage where the conversation's going and all that. And there is a tremendous amount of that that goes on. And there is, I think, a tremendous amount of naivete on both sides. Americans talking to their own uh, uh, officials and to Chinese and also Chinese talking to their own and to folks on abroad, um, oftentimes underappreciate how much this is sort of a, a narrative management exercise more than government people really asking for inputs and opinion. That all said, there always is a channel and room for some really important, open-minded, probing interaction between people who are in government and people who have time to think, right? Um, as you put it a minute ago, you're getting paid to write and think about China. That is true, and that will continue until the point where there's not value in what you produce, at which point you'll cease to be paid, and we'll all, we all will. We'll have to fold the firm, right? But the, 
the the acid test of whether what we're doing is sustainable is whether we judge that people who are in government and don't have time to do any thinking for themselves today are interested in talking to us tonight to try to catch up on what's happening and figure out you know what they think is going to be important for them to focus on next. So there's both of these things. There's a lot of narrative management stuff that happens. And then there is also absolutely room for crucial dialogue and, and uh, interaction between people in the private research sector that we're in and, uh, and people in, uh, in government. How, how do you know when you're getting played, Dan? It's an art. It's not a science. Ex in, except in the rare instances where there's a security breach and like WikiLeaks, and that gives one side or the other side a tremendous amount of information that wasn't supposed to be public about who is a legitimate researcher and who is just kind of out there to sort of join the blogosphere, basically. But most of the time, you just have to develop some instinct um, for whether what you're doing is substantive and meaningful or it's just more talk. I mean, I have to say, it's one of the reasons, as I, as I suggested earlier, that I wanted to build a hybrid entity that interacted with business people, not just with the think tanks sector in DC and around the world. I think the closer you get to where the money is and you ask people to actually pay for what you're doing, the more confident you can be that it has some material value and not just the ability to kind of shape the shape the lead, as they say at the papers. So speaking of making uh, things that people will read in government, report length. I just came across uh, the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence's 750-page PDF, um, which I will make my way through, but uh, was not able to do in the last day or two. Dan, what is the right length for a report? I've come a long way. You know, when I started out in the 90s, the first book I wrote called Behind the Open Door, which I thought was a cheeky title at the time, but nobody knows the old porn movie that that's a reference to anymore because I'm too old. But um, uh, that was like 300 pages. And at that point, 1996, 97, that was essential for me to demonstrate my credibility, right? That I actually had done 300 pages worth of work and of course, for every page in, in a book, there's three pages of stuff that doesn't make it to a book, right? So there's a time and a place for doing longer format work to really uh, work through and evaluate every possible nook and cranny of an issue. But in the policy space, and the more you're dealing with a C-suite of companies where we try to keep our attention focused more there rather than down the line at Rhodium, although we do a little of everything, the more you just have to boil it down and put it into a shorter format because people just don't have the time. I don't think you're going to have the time to read that uh, full document, by the way. Um, so um, just a heads up. Um, so, yeah, we used to think that uh, a proposal was better if it offered more length. And now a 10-page memo is much harder and better to write than a 50-page memo. Uh, and 100 is is hard to imagine us offering to do something these days. Yeah. In a different media world, I would have spent the past two and a half years writing a book instead of writing a newsletter. 
And this is something that I, my parents kept telling me, Jordan, like, when are you going to write your book? When are you going to write your book? And my, like, on the one hand, I'm insecure that, like, I don't have some, you know, academic press book to my name. But at the same time, I feel like there really is a lot of value in trying to mix up um, in, in, I don't know, I, I sort of I intend to write a book at some point. I, I don't think like long research is 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 unfounded, but but there really is something in um, being able to, to to write short and and impactful. Is there an analog in the podcast space? Is there like a certain time for an episode beyond which it's like indulgent to expect people to stick around? Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, that's a good question. I feel like. There are shows that are two, three hours, um, and I think they're fine. I think all all of these shows sort of have different places, and um, you know the Joe Rogans of the world, where it's just like three hours of two people shooting the shit, is is its own thing. I mean, like I th- I think what matters most is the quality, really, not necessarily the length. I mean, I I sort of do these shows. I I, I run you know, anywhere between 45 minutes and an hour 15, an hour 30, because I feel like people tend to lose stamina uh, once they pass the hour long mark as a, as a guest, you know, talking for that long is, is, is difficult, but you know, if the content's there, I'm happy to, I'm happy to go longer. And I think there've been a handful of shows where, um, you know, I've cranked up past the, past the hour and a half mark. So um, I think it, it, it depends, Dan, there's not, there's not a, there's not a good hour, but I, well, what I will say is I think doing a one-on-one interview for 10 minutes or, or 20 minutes that you really leave a lot on the table. And so I guess I'd say the same about books, right? I mean, the, the, the simple reality of life is that people don't have time to read five, 300 page books a week. They will make time to read 15, five page policy briefs, Right. But um, there are some things that need a book length treatment because um, they're just that big a topic. And so in a given year, Rhodium will put out, you know, probably three or four, if not five studies, the length of the cost of decoupling study from the chamber you mentioned, um, to the original two-way street, tracking of foreign direct investment. These things, you know, we're pushing 80, 90, 100 pages. So, you know, there's still room. For that book. Tell your parents not to give up hope. <laughs> Dan Rosen, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for being part of Rodium. Let me know when we get tonight Let me know, girl, when we got time